Hola, 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 amigos, amigos, players, playwrights, doo-doo-dets, everybody in between. Welcome. This is a special edition of Game of Crimes. Uh, we're going to dispense with a couple things that we normally do, small town police blotter, uh, things like that, because number one, it's the 22nd anniversary of 9-11. Never mm -hmm. forget. Um, and this this episode and the following episode that you'll find, too, that we'll be talking about the issues of terrorism. So nothing funny about terrorism, nothing funny about all these people dying. But our next guest, uh, we'll, we'll talk about him in a minute, but we just kind of want to set that stage real quickly, though. Um, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, Morgan here, joined by my partner in crime. Hey, it's Murph, everybody. Yeah. Hey, guys, head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars. Um, really means a lot. And after this episode, I think you'll realize why hearing stories like this are so important. So head on over there. Head on over to our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. The link to our next guest's book, what we'll be talking about, you're going to find that there. All sorts of good stuff there. Follow us on that thing they call social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But look, join us over on Patreon, Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We just got through recording. You can't make this shit up. Had some fun there. We did our Q&A, which is one of the funnest things we do. I think it's, it's the most fun we have because it's driven by you, mm -hmm. our players, right? It's a blast. It's a blast. And we've got good stuff. We got some good comments on our previous episode, 911, What's Your Emergency, um, which was actually recommended to us uh, by uh, one of our guests out there, Bunny, if she's listening. That was her asking about that. Mm -hmm. uh, so we did that. So, hey, good stuff. But uh, yeah, guys, just head on over to patreon.com. A lot of good stuff. We've got 911, What's Your Emergency? We've got our Narcometer review, our monthly Q&A, case of the month. Um, you know, and so we, we have a lot of fun. So join us there, patreon.com slash game of crimes. Now, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. But in this case, we take the story seriously. You know, right. we don't take ourselves seriously. Exactly. But in this case, we wanted to just take out some of this because our next guest, Murph, came to us uh, by way of a friend of the show again, good friend of the show, Patrick O'Donnell. Yes, sir. And, and thank you, Patrick, again for introducing us to Rick. Um, this guy is a true American patriot and hero. Rick Prado is our guest today, worked as an ops officer for the Central Intelligence Agency. Now, if you've heard me talk in the past, I, have, uh, I make jokes about what CIA stands for. Um, but if you've ever seen our presentation, I explained that, that I, it's not an indictment of the entire agency. It's, it was one particular person we had problems with while we worked in Columbia. The agency, in my opinion, is one of the best in the world. Everybody dogs them out because they can't publicly defend themselves because everything they do is secret, which goes to protecting our country. So, you know, I'm not, I know a lot of you probably won't agree to that. You've had bad experiences or you just believe with crap you see on TV or in the movies. But Rick's going to straighten out a lot of that stuff today. You're going to hear stories that you're not going to hear anywhere else. And, and let me tell you, too, um, the great thing about Rick is um, we knew some of the same people and actually, one of our guests we had on, Tracy Walder, previously, mm -hmm. had just come on the agency at that time. But Rick was in charge of the Counterterrorism Center, CTC for CIA. His, When you talk about the tip of the spear, they were the tip of the spear before the tip of the spear got in there, before the Green Berets got in there. Before they, the first military boots were on the ground, it was CIA, their paramilitary officers. Guys, this is a story, you know, and I know people say we, we dispel a lot of stuff, but here's the important thing. Rick gets into, we actually have some very candid discussions around 9-11, the current threat of terrorism, what's going on in the world. We dispel and disabuse people of some of these notions about enhanced interrogation techniques. Um, it, it's not torture. I know some people will disagree with that. It's not torture. Not when we put our folks through the same thing. He'll talk about SEER training. Mm -hmm. But I think the biggest thing that I got out of this, Murph, was just listening Here's another guy like Jack Garcia. 
came out of Cuba, fled Castro. These people know what communism looks like. They know how bad this stuff is. And they came to this country. His first firefight was at seven years old. He's going to tell you about that. First time, not that he was actually directly involved, but he was in the middle of a firefight at seven years old with automatic weapons. Uh, Again, it's just what an American, you know what the American story is, Murph? Here's somebody who comes to America, loves America, wants to do everything they can to defend and protect America against all enemies and foreign foreign and domestic. And here's another guy that's living proof of the thing you always say, just because we retire doesn't mean our oaths expire. What he's currently doing is great. So, hey, look, we're going to, like I said, we're going to dispense with a lot of stuff. We just want to get right into the episode. So before we can talk about this episode, Murph, there is one thing we do have to do. Before we talk about this, I need to ask you, are you ready to play? And you guys will realize this. In honor of 9-11, the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes. Everybody get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Bring Rick on, a true American patriot. Unbelievable what you're getting ready to hear. Guys, this is a special episode uh, for a couple reasons. Number one, um, we'll give you a bigger intro when we, in the intro outro. You'll see that we just did this, but this episode was specifically designed to come out on 9-11 because the man we're about to talk to had such a huge role in fighting what happened during 9-11, some of his work, uh, and I just thought it would be great. So, hey, let's let's just get the magic started. So, Enrique, Rick, Pareto, bienvenidos, amigo. Muchas gracias. It's my pleasure to be here, guys. Um, wait till it's here, over, Rick. and we owe we owe uh, we owe one of our good friends, our Irish friend up in uh, Wisconsin, a big thank you, Patrick O'Donnell, for making the introduction for us. So, Slancha, I had Rick. a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. I, I've allowed Patrick to rename himself back to O'Donnell. I said his name was Patrick O'Connell, and I said you're just <laughs> going to have to go with it because once it's out there. Uh, but uh, we, we we allowed him to go back. Well, hey, Rick, first of all, welcome. It's a high honor because we were talking just before we started, uh, some mutual friends, uh, mutual acquaintances, and, and you knew a lot of guys that Murph did. But to get into that, we got to start, though, because there's going to be a connection between you and two of our other guests, because your story starts not just when you joined the agency. Your story starts back as a youth in Cuba. Again, Cuba during the Castro regime. You, it's according to your book and according to everything that's written. You got into your first firefight at age seven, dude. That's some gangster shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, I I was in Cuba during the revolution. I was about seven, or eight years old when uh, they started attacking the town that I lived in. And right in front of my window, my parents were out. I had a fourteen-year-old nanny taking care of me. And uh, this firefight ensued. I went to the front window and opened up the uh, the window and literally saw the firefight going on. What I did not see was that on the parrot below the uh, window, there was a guerrilla fighter with an automatic weapon. And all of a sudden, he pops up and lets off a big you know, blast of automatic uh, fire. And it was the first time with auditory exclusion and tunnel vision um, and watching that go down. So... But, you know, one of the things that I, uh, touching back on that childhood part, I think that, you know, God puts a path in front of us. And if we have the courage to to take it, he also, you know, kind of grooms you. And I think that all the things that I saw early on in my life and subsequently, including pararescue and everything else subsequent, was part of the molding that ended up being what I am today. When did it become apparent? Um, that you were going to be leaving Cuba was that was that kind of like the 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 straw that broke the camel's pack 
uh, proverbially speaking, or was, were there other events that your parents finally said, look, we got to get out of here? Well, my, my parents, uh, my father fell out of love with Castro very quickly because he, he started seeing what was going on. And then we were actually affected by it because he started confiscated private property. My dad had a small coffee roasting company, uh, and that got taken away maybe six months after Castro took over. So that was the first left hook. And that's what my dad said. We, we, we're going to try to leave the country. Bay of Pigs happened uh, exactly a year before I left, almost to the day. Uh, and that was the tipping point when the the, uh, the fiasco, uh, the political fiasco, because a lot of people blame CIA for for how that went wrong, and it wasn't. It was the administration. But um, that that was the tipping point for my dad, and he could not get out with my mom and myself at the same time. So they got me out through a Catholic program called Peter Pan, and I ended up in an orphanage in Pueblo, Colorado, at the age of ten. And that, unbelievable. The, the, I just I can't imagine how traumatic that was on a 10 year old and, and your parents as well having to let you go like that. You know, it's it's funny you mentioned that because a lot of people say, gee, poor little kid. Listen, that was the best thing that happened to Rick Prado. I'm an American. You know, but the people that really paid the price were my parents. My mom was never the same after this because mm -hmm. imagine I'm an only child. So you're putting your 10 year old only child on an airplane to go to an orphanage, not knowing if you're going to be able to get out of the damn island. Mm -hmm. That takes courage. And that is first love of a parent for their kids with the sacrifices that they're willing to make. And that innate part that people have in our, in their hearts about freedom. Freedom is an innate thing that we all want uh, to enjoy. He didn't want that for his son. Well, you know, that's, that's, that's what I love about Cuban Americans who, endured that i'm sorry that that happened because castro is such a jackass including his brother and his followers on um but i give you a perfect example pitbull the singer the rapper holy cow here's a guy who came from cuba is living in the united states is hugely successful multi-multi-millionaire rapper artist and he will get up on a stadium i've seen videos of him up on stage telling you don't like his country get the fuck out you got to respect yep. that i mean he knows and you know how bad it was down there, especially your family situation. And it makes you appreciate what you have. And it just, man, I hate to get on my soapbox this early in, a, in an interview. <laughs> but I agree 100%. If you don't like our country, get the hell out. and go. You'll go. You will quickly find out, as bad as we are, we're still better than anything else that's out there. And if you start rapping, Murph, I'm going to edit that complete part out. Because he oh. was rapping some Pitbull earlier. He was throwing gang. I'm gonna I'm gonna mute, I'm gonna mute here for a minute while I cool down. Okay. <laughs> hey, would that make sense? What I saw in, in your LinkedIn profile, Rick, too, because it said Peter Pan, I think, survivor, and I I was trying to figure out what that meant, and now that makes sense. Uh, I know exactly where Pueblo is. My parents uh, were all Western Slope, grew up there, Gunnison, Grand Junction, Montrose. Uh, when I was a trooper of Southwest Kansas, Pueblo was not that far from us, you know. So that area. So I mean, what a heck of a story. So when you came over. How long before or did your parents make it over? Yeah, it took about eight months. Um, the, uh, they settled in Miami in a very shady part of Miami because that's all they could afford. Um, my father didn't wasn't allowed to take a single dollar out of the country. So he actually owed $200 when, when he got into the States that a cousin had lent him. Uh, it took about a month to get me down from the orphanage, but... Um, we were definitely sub-poverty. Um, I mean, my dad was mowing lawns and loading trucks just trying to put bread on the table. 
So uh, let me throw a couple names out at you. A couple of our previous guests. Does the name Luis Navia uh, ring a bell with you at all? I have heard the name, but I have never had the honor of meeting him. Yeah, he was. Uh, he he was a. Uh, how would we say this, Murph? He was an entrepreneur too. His parents fled Cuba, but uh, he ended up getting popped coming out of what was it, Peru, with twenty six tons of cocaine by Venezuela. one of you, Venezuela, Venezuela. <laughs> Yeah, but he'd worked. He'd worked. Uh, he'd worked across all the cartels. But the other one, though, Jack Garcia uh, with FBI, uh, is down in Miami, and he worked against the mob and everything. And uh, his same story, same exact story. It's like here we are. Castro comes into power, and they start taking everything away from us. Yeah, you know, a lot of people focus on on the firefight that I saw, the violence that I saw. But what really was the clincher for me, and and I think that that was the first big. Uh, hammer on my on my metal was how quickly Castro's control came over within matter of months I was wearing a uniform to school mm-hmm. you know, at the age of eight I'm, I'm I'm having to go to a peasant's house to teach him how to read and write how does an eight-year-old teach anybody how to read and write it was all political control mm-hmm. and I remember the teachers in the classroom telling me telling us you if you hear your parents say anything bad about Castro or the revolution, it is your duty to report them. Fast oh, forward, we were going to Havana, and I'm driving in. Uh, my, my dad's hanging from t- telephone poles with signs across their neck that says uh, contra-revolutionaries. That was how quick the political oppression was in Cuba. And those are the things like people jumping off the building in 9-11 that are tattooed in my brain. Mm. Well, horrible, horrible. Yeah, and that's, but you just bring up the point too. It sounds like Mao, it sounds like Xi Jinping now, communist China. You want to control society. One of the first things you control is the children. You put them in uniforms, you get them reporting on their parents, you start indoctrinating them into the political ways. And then pretty soon you've got a society that looks like, you know, what we have now in communist China. Yes, I mean, that's textbook communism 101. We saw the same thing in Vietnam. We we definitely see it in the Russia models. Uh, Venezuela did something very similar. Um, To me, the the biggest quandary is why do people fall for communism when there isn't a single example of a country that went from democracy to to communism that has actually flourished? And Cuba, at at the time that Castro took over, had one of the highest per capita income in Latin America and education. Venezuela was one of the richest countries in Latin America, and both are in shambles. You know, it's 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 very similar to what we go through here in the United States when elections are coming around. Our politicians get up, they promise you the world. They promise you everything's going to be better. It's going to be, you know, you're going to be wealthier. Your taxes are going to get lowered. Everything's going to be Shangri-La. Not your Shangri-La, but Shangri-La. And we'll talk about that later. But um, uh, then they get in power, and the, it's all about them. You know, you never get what they promise you, whether it's a democratic society or a communist society. But you're exactly right. Why would anybody want socialism and communism? I don't understand that. Yeah. What was it Margaret Thatcher said? The only problem with socialism is pretty soon you start running out of other people's money. <laughs> OPM, <laughs> other people's money. <laughs> We've seen that happen. Well, so Rick, now take us, now kind of walk us through um, the, so you're, you're down in Miami. How does a Rick Prado, Enrique uh, Prado, go from being uh, an immigrant from Cuba, a, an orphan, reunited with his parents? How do you go from that? What's your path now to getting, what, what's your first taste of saying, 
I want to do something for this country, this, you know, my new country. When does that start entering your head? Well, you know, uh, when my my parents got on their feet in a couple of years, uh, we moved to Hialeah. Um, I always had good grades in school, but I was always fighting in school. That was something we were, you know, group of guys. We've gotten into the martial arts and lifting weights and what everybody else was smoking pot. We'd be getting in fights. Those were my stupid, stupid, stupid years. And uh, but again, my grades were always decent. I just had, you know, D's for conduct. And um, I started junior college at Miami-Dade, and I had no friends there. Um, first thing, a couple of weeks into the the, uh, the, the semester, the hippies uh, announced that the following day they were going to take down the American flag and burn it. Well, I didn't have any friends uh, at, at the place, so I called some of my high school homies that gladly showed up. It was, I think it was four or five of us, and it was about 20 hippies. And needless to say, it was not a fair fight for them. Um, but that was the tipping point. That was the tipping point because at the end of that, and that's seeing that American flag still flying over us and knowing what all, these were all Cuban kids, by the way, all the, we had gone through, it was the first time in my life that I had been proud of doing violence. And six yeah. months later, I joined Air Force Pararescue, which as you know, it's one of our uh, special operations forces for the military. I love it. I love it. Stand up for the flag. Well, and I love the pararescue. We'll we'll talk about that story, or we'll talk about the story too, because some of those guys people joke about the you know the Air Force and how they have the great chow halls and they stay in hotels. But when you see some of these guys and what they did, especially during uh, the second Gulf War and what they, I think one of the pararescue guys was one of the only double recipients of the Medal of Honor. Wasn't it that one guy who was holding off basically ISIS and a bunch of guys and the SEALs couldn't even land because of all the incoming fire? Am I thinking of the right guy? Yeah, it was a, It was a, definitely an Air Force Special Operations Command. I don't remember if it was a PJ or if he was a combat controller, but there the, the, were sister units and we often deployed together, yeah. And you remember, uh, Morgan, when we had uh, Derek Maltz on here, episode 71, his brother, Michael Maltz, was a, a pararescue guy who was killed in Afghanistan. So true freaking hero. Yeah. Badass people. Um, well, so you get this taste and and look, it's funny you should say that. It's that what's that old saying? It said, uh, people sleep peacefully in their beds at night because rough men and now women stand ready to do violence on their behalf. There is a place for violence, uh, you know, directed. How did that how did that incident now? What did you do during community college? This is kind of this formative thing for you now. So how does that lead you? Uh, into CIA. You, you're in the Air Force. Did you get a taste of CIA while you were in the Air Force? Did you run into some guys? No, no. I, I was an avid reader uh, since child, since middle school. And I read every James Bond novel and I loved OSS stories. Um, I still always looking for 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 an old book or a new book on, on those topics. So um, I I, I didn't know anybody in the military. I didn't know the difference between Army, Navy, Air Force, or Marines. Nobody in my family had ever served. I had never met anybody in in in, uh, in service uh, until I got recruited by by, in, by pararescue. Um, so so for me, it was just uh, I went from being a pararescue man uh, when I got my beret was in late seventy three. I'm sorry, late seventy two, and. Vietnam was over. And my reason for joining Pararescue was to go fight for my country. So for the next year and a half, I was doing real sexy, jumping out of airplanes, halo casts, rappelling upside down. And that was all fun. And I loved every bit of it. I still do. 
but there was no purpose. That I was not making a difference. So I applied for the agency in 1974. And if you know you, you say you're a history guy. You know that post-Vietnam, the agency and the military were decimated. Um, and we, you know, they really cut it down to almost nothing. Yeah. Well, um, real quick, Rick, you say you applied. How did, did, did you approach them? Did they approach you based on your skills? Because a lot of your skills obviously translate into some of your first assignments. So how did this connection, how did you, how did you get involved in this thing of ours? I, I, I literally wrote a letter to the agency saying, you know, and basically I'm free and single. I'm a PJ. I speak Spanish. I hate communism. Put me in coach kind of stuff. And they came back with a real nice note signed by whoever I uh, should have kept it. But they said, um, thank you. But basically they said, we're, we're firing, not hiring. So I, I went into uh, rescue. I, I, I rode rescue for Miami Metro uh, um, fire department for six years. And I, um, towards the end of my pararescue reserves, I went to the 20th special forces reserves out of Fort Lauderdale. And I think it was in 1980, early 1980, that I reapplied to the agency. Uh, a little bit more polished note this time, but it pretty basically said the same thing. You know, this is who I am. This is what I bring to the table. And this time they they reached out to me and brought me on on contract. Their, their, their comment was, we need medics with your paramilitary background to support our training and support some of our missions. But it's only contract work. We'll have you up here for a week, for two weeks. Can you take the time off? So that was my introduction to the agency uh, late in 1980, where I would take uh, uh, some leave from the fire department. I would go over there and work for, for three weeks or whatever I was allowed and come back. Um, I got tired of that. I was losing ground with, with my rescue uh, uh, you know, credentials, and I didn't want to do that. Uh, so I, I actually quit that. and then. Reagan take over, and Reagan declares war on communism in the United States, and the first thing that he says to the CIA is, Bill Casey, who was the best DCI we ever had, um, Mr. Casey, what I want you to do is you know, dethrone the Sandinista regime, get a program going, and that's the Contra program that was born. And uh, sadly, I just found out yesterday that uh, Russ L, I won't mention his last name because I don't know if he's if he passed undercover, but uh, was the guy that 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 called me on the phone that remembered me from my contract days uh, to hire me on. I just found out two days ago that he he just passed away. Um, but the um, I, I think a week later I was already at uh, headquarters. Uh, I went to from there to Nicaragua, Costa uh, Honduras border, and uh, no training. Uh, whatsoever from the agency. All I had was my Spanish, my paramilitary skills, and those street skills in Miami came in really handy when it came to <laughs> the people. I was yeah, going to say know. dodging bullets and, you know, staying out of the way that came in handy. No, I was talking more about your posture, how to deal with rough people, uh, not necessarily punching them in the nose, but how to, you know, sit across the table from somebody and not look like food. Um, and, and when you're dealing with these kind of dangerous people, you have to have that posture. You guys know that from your own backgrounds, you know? Hey, Rick, oh, yeah. real quick. Um, but why CIA? Why didn't you go FBI or DEA? You know, we talked earlier, you knew some guys from DEA. What, what was it about CIA that says, um, you know, where you zoned in on it and said, this is what I wanted to do? Like I said, I read a lot of James Bond novels and that kind of stuff. So the CIA was always there. 
but it, but it's funny. I'm trying to remember his uh, and I, senior moment. There was a DEA guy that used to come to a clothing store that I was uh, working in Miami Springs, and I'll think of the guy's name. Um, uh, he uh, went to Pakistan. He he always talked to me about when you graduate from high school, you should try out for DEA. We're cool. He would show up in this Porsche that was confiscated <laughs> and all this other shit. So he went to uh, uh, Pakistan for a year, came back. And you probably remember the story because he, uh, on his first ba- day back to work in Miami, when he reported, that's when that bu- the DEA building collapsed, and he was one of the few casualties. Um, and so if it hadn't been for that, I probably would have been in DEA because he had it all lined up um, for when I graduated for high school, give me the applications and, and uh, you know, support my application. Wow. He was killed in that in that collapse. Yes, sir. He was. Wow, um, that's what I know. I know Merce checking it up right now. I mean, because that's that stuff's fascinating, not from a morbid standpoint, but simply because we don't know how our lives are going to intersect, how they're going to change. You know what changes our path. But you know, I'm like you, I'm a huge fan of reading. Uh, I love my only. I'm supposed to be going to London in November uh, if things work out. I belong to the Association of Former Intelligence Officers. They used to have, AFIO used to have a reciprocal membership with the Special Forces Club in London. Yes. I'm an AFIO member. Uh, yeah, they don't anymore. I called the Czech City. I'm going to be going to London. They still have that. Said now the Special Forces Club. Apparently it got too busy and they said, uh, you Americans, uh, we don't have room for you anymore. So, in, you know, maybe I'll talk to you. Maybe you can hook me up with somebody when I'm over there. So. In the old days, I probably could. Yes. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, so let's let's go from there. So, so when you're down there, uh, uh, south of the border, as they say, way south there, you have no training. Are you a CIA? Are you a contractor now, or are you quote working for the agency full time? I was I was working for the agency. Uh, I was not trained as a case officer yet, but I was what they call now a PMO, paramilitary officer. So. Wow. How how long did you, you said you were down, how long, well, I, you might've said, how long were you down there and doing that? I, I was, I slept in a jungle hammock Monday through Friday for three years and loved you, every program. And the, you, uh, the first 14 months of that program, because uh, it was a black ops, like that's, that's one of the reasons for my book, uh, because it was a black ops and meant that the U.S. hand had to remain hidden. So I was pulling it off. I was there as a Honduran major. And uh, um, I was the only guy allowed to go to the camps for the first 14 months. So all the training that went on for these guys from headspace and timing of 50 cal to shooting the mortars or RPG sevens and and, uh, these kind of things. I was the only guy that could teach them. I would hit two camps a week, two days each. And I did that for for over a year. And then I got a couple of guys that came down, former SF guys that helped with um, yeah, no training whatsoever, rather than what was in-house. Did you ever get to a point where uh, your cover might have been blown or was close to being blown, or did was that not really that big of an issue while you were down there? It eventually did. Uh, obviously, you know, the Sandinistas had their penetrations of the camps because, uh, you know, that's easy to do. Get a couple of rebels that are not really rebels to to volunteer to be in there, and they they, they know everything that's going on. So the first thing that came up was an intercept that described me to a T uh, as um, the person that was working with the Hondurans to the camps. It didn't say CIA. They did not throw out the three letters. 
Um, but there was one uh, that thought that I was Puerto Rican, uh, one of the intercepts. Says, I don't know. So this guy sounds like a Puerto Rican. So um, that that was uh, and they did target us. As a matter of fact, I don't know that I was the, the main target because Stedman Fagath, which was the head of the Mosquitoes, was was there at the time of the ambush. Him and I were were staying in Puerto Lempira. We've been there for about a week. There's only two restaurants, if you want to call them that, in Puerto Lempira. And we would go to the better of the two, which was right on the water. And late that morning, I got called back on an emergency thing back to uh, to Tegucigalpa. And that night, Stedman got uh, ambushed. Um, my interpreter got ambushed. He got nicked. Uh, and there was a priest with him that was killed, was assassinated. Uh, and they themselves told me, he says, you're lucky because you would have been here with us. So, but we don't know if they were going after the trifecta of getting, you know, both the priest, uh, Stedman Faggoth, and, and, and uh, you know, that strange guy that's that's doing all the stuff in the camps. Uh, Rick, do either of these names sound familiar? Nick Fragos or Chuck Mann, Charles Mann? Chick Frago, uh, uh, I've heard the name, but I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, it's not people that I've worked with per se that I can recall. Those are the, those two agents were killed in the building collapse in Miami. Okay. Uh, no, this was, um, I'll, I'll, I'll think of the name. I'm sorry. I, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm looking at his face actually, because I've actually looked it up and, um, he had just come back from Pakistan. And as a matter of fact, the way I found out about it was two of his buddies came to the store to tell me because he had talked to them about me going into the DEA. So let's, let's take you from there then. Um, now, obviously this is the time when, um, what later became known as the Iran Contra affair or, you know, Ollie North and the arms. Is that part of what you were supporting at that time? Was that program, uh, coming down there, the, the support of arms and ammunition to the rebels? Well, the the first part of it, no. During the uh, during the Honduran phase of it, uh, I, I left in early '84. Uh, then we still had the congressional support that uh, to help the Contras. Subsequently, in '86, I was sent back down. I went back to spy school, uh, uh, got, got, uh, and got sent to Costa Rica to uh, to run the southern front of the Contra program from a very hostile, very different to Honduras. In Honduras, Nicaragua border, we had complete support from the Hondurans. Uh, we paid for their helicopters, whatever, but they always they always there for us, providing us cover and, and support. In Costa Rica, the Costa Ricans were actually trying to arrest the Contras because they were afraid of pissing off the, the, the Sandinistas. Um, so during that time is when the funding stopped Unbeknownst to me, remember I was I was a GS twelve when when I was in in, in Costa Rica. Got my thirteen at the end, and uh, it was you know I knew that I was helping the Contras there. I knew that I was coordinating these flights. I was writing all this up. As a matter of fact, when when uh, Ali North and Joe Fernandez, who was my boss at the time, uh, both got indicted and all that other stuff, they loved my testimony because I could sit there going. I was a paramilitary officer in that program, and I used to get a cable saying that there's a airdrop at this time, and I would write in agency channels what they had received on that airdrop. Um, so, uh, they, yeah, they're, they're like everything else, political uh, messes things up, even in our profession. Let's yeah, read. 
let's rewind for a second because you you just skipped right past it. You said you went to spy school. So let's talk. Are we talking yeah. about? <laughs> and then I went to spy school, and then I took over the world. Let's go back <laughs> to spy school. You're we're talking about the farm, right, Camp Perry? Yeah, the best kept secret in the United States is uh, the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> of, of course, it's on Google Maps. You can just drive right past the entrance, right? Um, well, let's let's talk about that. So. Um, when you go through that now, the whole purpose is to train you as an ops officer, right? A, a case officer. Um, so how does that decision get made to take you out of the paramilitary stuff and turn you into a case officer? Was that your decision or was that their decision? No, I didn't know enough uh, to, I didn't know enough to be uh, making those decisions, but I, I was always blessed with great bosses. My, uh, my first boss in Honduras was Colonel Ray, uh, just an incredible hero. And he was my first mentor. Uh, but also Dewey Claridge, uh, who was at the time Bill Casey's pit bull. Um, him, he liked me because I was his man in the camps. I was the, you know, the only guy in the camps at the time. So when my time, after three years in Honduras, I was ready to go. And, and they, you know, again, the threats and everything else, they, they figured it was time for me to go. So they made some phone calls and um, they they made sure that when I got back, that I would uh, be able to go to uh, to the farm. Um, I stayed in in Ground Branch Special Activities Division, Ground Branch. But what was happening at the time, guys, was a lot of the paramilitary officers were not case officers. And they were literally looked down as second class uh, individuals. Well, they wanted to change that. So they made it mandatory that everybody who wanted to have a career as a PMO had to be a case officer and have at least one tour as a case officer. Um, obviously with terrorism that changed because we were the, with the flavor of the day, but, um, that's, that's how I got through the farm, which, you know, and the big thing with the farm is that here I come in, I'm a blunt object, you know, I'm a paramilitary guy that jumps upside down and does all this ninja stuff. But now I got to get on coat and tie and I have to learn people skills and I have to learn dead drops and covert communications and covert. It was, it was fantastic. It was fantastic work. But long days, very realistic. Uh, you're you're living in a foreign country um, during all this training. When you're out of the classroom, you're actually operating for real. And you have people surveilling you, people filming you, uh, getting stopped, all that kind of stuff, and people that you have to recruit. So it's quite intensive. But it's quite a change from it's polishing a blunt object into something uh, multi, multi-tool, you know. Yeah, learn to stick your pinky out when you're drinking, uh, you know, a fancy drink. Was that part of it? You probably had to go through some State Department stuff also. We used to call that knife and fork school to go overseas. Yeah, I was obviously, uh, I ended up with State Department cover. So, yeah, I, as a matter of fact, I have my accreditation paper signed by Ronald Reagan in my in my office at the house. Very cool. So are you at liberty to say what your diplomatic cover was at that time? It was it was State Department. You know, they uh, you know, you start out as a third secretary for underwater basket weaving or whatever. <laughs> and um, it very, in, uh, you know, Costa Rica was we, we was very slim, but it, but it was something close to uh, to that kind of cover. It was a mediocre cover. Um, but but subsequently, you know, I was, you know, a political officer or this, that or the other uh, when I wasn't on DOD cover. I was on DOD cover when I traveled. Um, TDY for for missions, but but when I was posted overseas, we had to do it through state. When you were down there, who were most of your biggest threats? I mean, we, we a lot of people tend to think of Russia, you know, China, but uh, but you know, but um, uh, China or I mean, Cuba had a 
very robust intelligence service. When you think of Anna Montez and how they ran her, I think it was for 17 years. I think it's called, was it DGS? Is that what it was called in Cuba? Yeah. Um, who were your biggest threats that you worried about when you were w- operating undercover? Um, who was the biggest threat to your cover or uh, to you personally as you're trying to get your missions done? Well, ter- terrorism, was, it, it was just starting to creep in. But terrorism at the time, in the 80s, was a regional problem. You had local, you know, like the, uh, you know, the uh, the Colombian uh, cartels sponsored individuals. You had the uh, the Panamanians. You had this, that, or the other. Um, in Costa Rica, my main concern were the Sandinistas because they were actively, you know, looking for these guys. And 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 as a matter of fact, some were uh, assassinated. Um, you know, some of the Contras were killed. Uh, and of course, the local service for the Costa Ricans, which were trying to uh, keep us from working there, so they could not, uh, you know, maintain their their civil status with with the Sandinistas. Later on, when I went to the the one country that they don't allow me to uh, talk about in, in South America with a Maoist uh, insurgency and a leader that is that they, they refer to as the professor, most people get it right. Um, there I was, uh, the challenge was terrorism. Um, the, the counterintelligence wasn't, you know, very robust. So the local service did give, you know, they didn't care what we were doing. They were friendly towards the Americans at that time. Um, but terrorism, the local terrorism, where there were two very strong factions there. And, uh, that was the main threat. And, and I actually recruited, and it's in the book, I actually recruited a, uh, a terrorist from, from the most violent uh, of the two organizations there. Uh, and I ran that guy for a year. Um, needless to say, I took very good care of, you know, making sure I had my surveillance detection discipline going to these meetings was big for my own sake, but coming home, I did twice as much because I could not afford that to come to my front door. So definitely, definitely terrorism there. And subsequently in the Philippines, those were our biggest threats. Yeah, Abu Sayyaf uh, in the Philippines was that big when you were there? Abu Sayyaf was just rearing his head down in Mindanao. The, they were active; they were there, but not what they became uh, afterwards. Uh, the MPA, New People's Army, was the big deal there. Uh, I got there about eight months after they killed Nick Rowe, uh, the legendary uh, Green Beret Colonel. Uh, was assassinated. Uh, he was using an armored vehicle, but uh, a round got through, hit him in the back of the head. Just the, the golden BB concept. Um, mm-hmm. They had also killed uh, the, the uh, MPA had this group called the Sparrows that they were professional assassins. And uh, they had killed several um, uh, airmen at Clark Air Force Base and other places, plus polit- political figures. And uh, as a matter of fact, one of the, the stories that always comes up from the book is the fact that they targeted us in, in Davao. And we almost got our cl- uh, cl- you know, clocks cleaned by them. That was uh if you if you read that if you if our listeners read uh, uh, Rick's book here, that's an exciting response uh, to the way things happened. Well, and actually, you know, we we were negligent, Rick. Let us tell you, folks, got to, and this will be posted on our site. You can also find it on his site, Rick Prate or Prado R I C P R A D O dot com. It's called Black Ops: The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior, CIA Counterterrorism Chief of Operations, retired. Hey, um, let's rewind for a second, because, again, it's one of those things. And then I recruited a terrorist from one of the most violent, you know, uh, organizations. How does one go about recruiting, you know, 
And then what's your pitch? I mean, what did you, what is it that you identified that allowed you to know that you could pitch this guy and get him to work for Team America? Well, you know, it's funny because again, this is where I think my street smarts were, were stronger than my, uh, official tradecraft procedures, you know, normally we, you know, we, we bump somebody at a particular place, somebody with that we know that that has access to information that we want, uh, befriend them, uh, start picking their brains on, you know, how they think, uh, we, the, the Americans, we try to recruit for strengths, whereas the communist blocks, they will recruit even more so uh, for weaknesses, people that have drug problems, alcohol problems, and so on, financial problems. Um, so you, you, you develop that rapport built on a mutual ideology, and then you turn it into a recruitment. Well, this guy was a, a terrorist. He was actually a mule. He was not a, a, an actual operator. He was a mule. He was, he was assigned for carrying the, uh, the, the explosives to a particular site so the dumb ones could come in and go blow stuff up because sometimes they blew themselves up or their trade craft that were so obvious that that's what this guy was. Well, he was part of a cell and he had one flaw. He smoked pot. And for this particular Maoist group, that was a no-no. You could not do drugs. So working with some local uh, counter-terrorist uh, uh, um, officials, we busted the cell and all these guys are getting interrogated except the one that uh, that we knew that was a pot smoker. We pulled them aside, and this you know friend of ours uh, introduced me as I was there as a, a Costa Rican a businessman, security guy. And my pitch to him was, I said, "Look, you're hearing what's going on in the other room with your guys, right?" I said, "Here's my deal. I don't care about communism. I don't care about this country." I'm a businessman. I provide security information for big companies here. If you can provide me with actionable intelligence on terrorist acts that are, be, are going to be committed, you're going to get this amount of money a month, and you'll be freed from this. You will not be compromised. Uh, and, and I did say to him, I said, but you lied on me once, and you'll be in that room getting interrogated also. So um, he was smart enough to acquiesce. He wasn't a diehard, you know, Maoist. He was more of a college kid that found this romantically cool to be doing this kind of crap. And he actually uh, provided some incredible stuff. Uh, we learned a lot, a lot. I debriefed this guy for hours about infrastructure, who was who. But most importantly, he actually gave me threat information. There was one time when the way that it worked is he would give the explosives and he had to deliver it to a particular place um, hours before it was going to happen, you know, six hours before, and hand it over to the group that was actually going to do. So he would carry that uh, in, in a covert way and pass it over. So we knew that the explosion was going to be within a couple of mile kind of, uh, you know, concentric circles there. And um, when he reported, um, the circle was awful close to the Marine House for the U.S. Embassy. Um, so needless to say, all, all our, our, uh, antennas went up and sure as hell, they blew up something, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't the, uh, the U S Marine house. It was the, um, the Chinese consulate or something like that. And, uh, I, well, I, I call that a win. We call that a win-win, right? <laughs> 
Yeah, but but what was funny was, you know, uh, you, you all have had to help, uh, you know, have to deal with hindquarters, and hindquarters always has that, you know, I know everything kind of uh, <laughs> attitude, right? So I write this thing, hey, this guy just reported this, this thing is about to blow up, blah blah blah. I send it in NIAC, and uh, of course the thing blows up. It's in the paper. Uh, next morning I send I send it in, and they say, well. Why? Why would a uh, this particular uh, organization attack the Chinese? And I said, because they're Maoist, and the Chinese are not Maoist. These people are diehard Maoists, and they see the you know the uh, the, uh, the 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 current Chinese government as an aberration of Mao's. Uh, so I, I had a lot of fun, you know, digging that that little needle into headquarters. I love that hindquarters. I never I, heard that before. <laughs> I like that. Hey, and you. You used a term which will be unfamiliar to those who don't read a lot of the novels or know this stuff, but you called NIAC for like night action. I think it's N-I-A-C-T. What, what, when you put a designation like that on a cable, what does that trigger? What does that mean? It is like immediate. It means that you have to bring somebody in from, the, from their home uh, and bring them in the office to read the cable and respond to it. Uh, needs immediate action. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, and and um, it works. Uh, now, later on in life, when I was the chief of operations of the counterterrorist center, I had a Stu-3 in my home, and the key was in a safe, and, and uh, it saved me some trips because they could read me a cable over the uh, over the secure line, and I could, uh, you know, dictate a cable back on. There was times where I still had to go in, but uh, yeah, it, it means all, all drop everything you're doing. This this is the number one thing you got to focus on. It's not it's not taken lightly. For our listeners there, you just heard him make reference to a Stu-3 phone. That's an encrypted telephone that uh, protects conversations. Yeah, you put the key in, it encrypts it, you pull it out, it decrypts. Now, here's the funny part. In some places, you could leave your key, uh, You could if you left your key lying on your desk, you get one of those yellow notices. The security officer would uh -huh. walk around. <laughs> Murphy. <you know. laughs> pink notices. That's what we got in coming Bogota. The, the, the Marines would come around and you'd come to work and find a pink notice on your desk. And three of those, you're out of country. <laughs> yeah. That, that's we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But yeah, but the whole thing about night action and, and doing that is what did you find out did because of your uh, understanding that they were getting the uh, explosives and that you started doing some things maybe that were obvious that you were defending the Marine base, did that push them towards the Chinese or was the Chinese the original target to begin with? Well, the, the Chinese was the original target. They had no way of, of uh, using that. Um, I met with, I, I used to meet this guy usually with one of the official guys that I work with because they, um, I, I was carrying a weapon, obviously, but they they're legally allowed to shoot people, kind of thing, uh, and uh, but that that this particular call was um, an unscheduled meeting. We, the biggest technological advancement for us at the time was the beeper. The beeper was the greatest thing for us because we could hide in what looked like uh, telephone numbers, uh, pre-designed instructions. So you know, mm -hmm. the first three numbers means I need to meet you now. Uh, the second is where and uh, something along the those lines. And uh, I got a beeper call from from the asset. And uh, I literally, you know, I had to go meet this guy by myself because my counterparts um, that I was working with this uh, very covertly were, uh, were were out of town. So I had to go literally body armor, two radios, two guns to meet this guy in a very nasty neighborhood in this particular town. And uh, 
but what he gave me was gold. And uh, the even the locals didn't didn't know about it uh, before time before it happened. Uh, so no, the, the the target was always the Chinese um, from the very beginning. Hey, and the other thing too, this is a good point to talk about terminology because we've been bringing that up. So um, I had the pleasure and the, in a sense, the misfortune because I'm speaking at a conference and I thought I did a pretty good job. Got you know polite claps like you were talking about with uh, Julie Redkamer. If you know you do it, and then the next person gets the standing O. Who follows me is Jim Olson. Jim Olson is like a legend in CIA. He got he got the intelligence star, I think, for an operation in Moscow. Was chief of station at Vienna, um, the Clayton Lone Tree thing. He comes up and he speaks after me, and it's like, oh my God, I feel so you know small after he speaks and what he talks about. But Jim went on to become a professor at Texas A&M, uh, teaches down there, their uh, intelligence studies and everything. He had a standing, he had a standing uh, rule in his class: if you don't understand the difference, if you misidentify an officer as an agent, that's a flunkable offense. And so, Rick, this is a good time because I, it just yeah. pisses me off. I see people write this, the people, CIA agent does this. I said, you do not understand. So would you give us just a quick primer on terminology and what really means what? Absolutely. We're, we're probably the only federal service with security slash intelligence slash whatever authorities that uh, we do not use the term agent. Uh, FBI agents, DEA agents, that's that's a proper name. Uh, but for us, for in the agency's parlay, uh, parlance, is uh, an agent is the person that you recruit. We are operations officers or case officers. Um, we like the operational officers because it gives you the OO designation. That's an inside joke on the uh, 007 stuff. <laughs> so uh, no, I'm an officer. I'm an OO. Uh, so I'm an OO. And um, the agent is the person that you recruit and that you run and you debrief and that you manage. So big difference. Now, it, it, and by the way, this is a great way to catch people because people will go, yes, I was a, I was a CIA agent. Anybody mm -hmm. that tells you that, the BS flag has to fly right on the spot. Dude, hey, I Tom, live in Northern are not allowed. Snitches <laughs> in the back. <laughs> I live in Northern Virginia still, Rick, and I can't tell you how many times you're sitting in a coffee shop or whatever. Oh, I can't tell you what I did. It's classified, or you know, oh yeah, I this and that, and yeah, I was an agent, and I'm like, oh, yeah, you just want to, yeah, you just want to bang your head against a wall. And go, okay, <laughs> uh, yeah, right. You know, you're they talking about bang their heads against the wall because that to me is stolen valor. You know, yep, we got right. 140 stars on our wall of people that you know, gave their lives for this country and had that as their, as their handle was operations officer. So for right. some, you know, pencil neck uh, taking the stolen battle for me, I take that very, very seriously. Yeah. One thing too, I noticed, uh, having worked with some of your folks uh, in South America and, and, um, actually over in Afghanistan as well is, you know, you're talking about your informants and, and the way you guys recruit are completely different than the way law enforcement does. It's, uh, you you know, I'm not saying it's better or worse. It's just for the a, a different purpose. You know, typically, if we get a long term informant, it's it's almost like you guys befriend these people, um, which you know for us is a big no no. So, but uh, when I was in Afghanistan, we went over and and that really opened my eyes in Kabul. We were meeting with your folks there in the building and and uh, outside the embassy there and and just. It was a real eye opener. I just have to say, when when we were in Columbia, it was very different. But over there, it was uh, it was something that I had not seen before. 
Yeah, you know, and I've worked a lot with police uh, post-agency. I have a very fond uh, appreciation for police officers. My first martial arts instructors were all, were both former Marines and they were uh, both police officers. Um, And and it is very different. Part of it is the goal. Our goal in recruiting somebody isn't just to disrupt an operation. Yeah, we do that. But what the real deal is keeping that person in there, sacrosanct, that they could survive any operations that we counter uh, for the longer run. So we have to develop a, uh, a very different. You guys will bust somebody. Uh, you have them by the short hairs because, you know, they, they're going to cop a deal. Um, they are usually, you know, fire and forget. You know, you use them for this mm-hmm. one case. They testify and then that's it. You know, you never use them again. Our, our case is more like what the FBI did, you know, infiltrating the mafia or something like that. We have to maintain a clandestine and secure relationship, but also a very healthy relationship. Uh, we have we have a motto in, in, in the business that says you never fall in love with your agent, but you make them think that you're in love with them. You're always ops testing them. You're always double checking. You always put them under surveillance to make sure that they're doing what they say that we're doing. Um, but it is very different because it's a very different goal. We don't don't work on collars, we work on intelligence. Hey players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash game of crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash game of crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.